This morning's scripture is Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside the uh, announcement sheet, our, our bulletin, you'll find uh, an insert. That insert not only has the order of worship, but it has a place for you to follow along as we go through this study of uh, Matthew chapter 11. It's actually going to be uh, a, a lot of 11 and about the first 14 verses of chapter 12 uh, of the Gospel of Matthew. So there's some room on there for you to make notes and to follow along. Uh, at the bottom, there are some questions that we use in our small groups. I only really know of one small group that is meeting tonight. Um, uh, if you uh, need some, some information about small groups, please make sure that you see me. We'd love to connect everybody with a small group. Uh, tonight, though, because of the holidays and everybody traveling, I only know of one group who is meeting. I hope you know who you are. And uh, uh, we're going to begin this study now with a word of prayer. For the last couple of days, Father, I have not been able to get out of my heart and my mind the, the words of, of Psalm 22 about in, in the midst of, of feeling isolated and alone, even forsaken, that there's the recognition, Father, even in the midst of, of crying out by day and finding no answer and by night and no rest, that you are holy and that you are enthroned upon the praises of your people. And that's, that's what we endeavor to be, to know that, that wherever we go in this world, Father, that wherever we go, whether it's on top of a mountain, it's life out on the plain, or if it's in a valley, that it is in you that we trust, and it is in you that we find deliverance, and it is in you that we do not find disappointment. And so, Father, we want to approach this text this morning with a lot of humility and, and, and a lot of gentleness with your word, Father. And it, it's our desire, Father, for these words, not, not just to become a, a piece of our learnedness, but they become a, a beat that resounds in our heart and soul every day in this life. Until the day we see you face to face, the Holy One who has always been enthroned upon our praise, we are delivered and not disappointed because our trust was in you. We are grateful for these words, Father, and we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear in order to be transformed. And we pray this in the name of the Holy One, Christ, our Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. I have, over the last couple of years, come to see, I think, or to, to believe that there's something holy about the work of optometrists or ophthalmologists in helping people to see clearly. It is 
It is a human problem at times to be able to see things clearly. Seeing clearly in order to perceive the reality around us is is essential to life in all things physical as well as spiritual. And it's one of the reasons why we ask God to give us eyes to see, to see what He is showing us and to reveal to us so that we can see clearly what it is that He's revealing to us. This passage, this passage that we are looking at this morning, this, this passage found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30, these are, these are words that we know well. We, we, they're some of the first words, along with Psalm 23, that we memorized as small children. They're the words that make up the lyrics to a lot of the songs that we sing as a church. We go to our Bible. These words are circled and colored and underlined. The page in our Bible. In fact, all the Bibles that we have on our shelves probably are dog-eared to this page. Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30. And yet sometimes I wonder if we realize that when we are reading these words where Jesus says, Come unto me, everyone who is just exhausted and burdened and weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because my yoke is light, my my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When we hear those words and read those words, do we recognize that we are walking into the center room of all of Christianity? To to see that, I want to give us a a bit of a context to help our, you know, to broaden our vision a little bit about what's going on in Israel when Jesus says these words. One of the things that Josephus tells us about first century Judaism is that it was as fragmented of a country and a culture and a religion as we found in the middle of the 19th century United States. Josephus tells us that there were at least four leading philosophies or four leading sects of Judaism during the time of Jesus when the Romans were on the throne and everybody was wondering what in the world is God going to do? He talks about the Essenes. The Essenes were those people that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found out on the northwest end of the Dead Sea at a place called Qumran. There was also a little community of Essenes inside of Jerusalem, but they were basically a holiness movement. They were very ascetic in their lifestyle. They, they were very rigid in their disciplines. They, they copied manuscripts and they had a manual of discipline and they were a people living an ascetic life in one of the most rugged areas of the Middle East out there by the Dead Sea. They disappeared about 70 A.D. and nobody knows what happened to the Essenes. And that's when the, the Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. And then you have the Zealots. The Zealots were the guys that when Jesus said... Turn the other cheek in the Sermon on the Mount. That you love your enemies as much as you love yourself. That you've heard that it was said you shouldn't murder somebody, but even if you're angry in your heart, you're breaking the law. These were the guys that were ready to go to war. They had started out, a lot of them, the theory says, they had started out as, as, as people who had, who had had jobs and they had families, but because of the taxation that was happening in, in Israel during that time, they had been dispossessed of their land. They had been moved to the margin of society. They were in part some of those day laborers that began to show up in the Gospels. 
where there had not been day laborers before. Some of them had, had become thieves and, and, and brigands, and there were pockets of them located throughout, throughout Israel, but they all looked to Rome, and they said, the reason that we're like this is because of you, and the zealots were ready to go to war. They were in part the reason why Rome attacked Israel in, in, in uh, the late 60s A.D., destroying Rome in 70. The, the zealots saw the writing on the wall, headed down to Masada to the south, to Herod's old fortress uh, out there in the, in the desert. And in 72 A.D., Rome goes in, finds that they've all uh, killed themselves because they would rather die than be enslaved to Rome, and the, the zealots are gone. Well, then you have the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, you know what the Sadducees, you know more about what the Sadducees don't believe in than what they did believe in. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a resurrection. If you don't believe in an afterlife, then what are you going to do with the life that you're living right now? Make the most of it. The Sadducees basically were located in the south, around the temple, around Jerusalem. They were the priestly people, and they were the aristocracy. And they were the ones that really had a lot to lose if Jesus created a revolt with the Romans. And when that temple was destroyed, and, and when, and when the, uh, the Jerusalem was burned to the ground, and it was sacked, and it was looted, those Sadducees disappeared as well. The only people standing were the Pharisees. About the time of Jesus, there's about 5,000 that are living in the land. The Pharisees were basically a holiness group, uh, a holiness movement as well, like the Essenes. But there's a little bit of a twist to it. They believed that everything that the prophets had said was absolutely correct. That they had lost the land because they did not do Torah. And they were going to do Torah in order to be able to get the land back and get Romans, you know, hobnail boot off of their throat and, and, and remove them and that they would be the superpower again. They would be the nation of God. And the story of the, the parable of the prodigal son is told about them. Because what they're really looking for is more what the Father can give them than the Father himself. And so in order to be able to do Torah in such a way that it was not transgressed and God would be pleased and they had earned the right to be Israel again, they built all of these hedges around the law by creating more and more and more laws. And that during the time of Jesus, those, those laws that they had created, that oral tradition that would later make up Talmud and Mishnah, those oral traditions that were taught, derivative teaching by the rabbis, all of that uh, began to feel and be referred to in Israel by the metaphor of a yoke. Now our passage this morning at the end of Matthew chapter 11 falls between a prayer right before Jesus says, come unto me, and right before uh, some, some problems with Pharisaic Judaism, where that idea of the yoke is, has become a problem for the Jews. And so when we get to chapter 11, it begins with John the Baptist. John the Baptist has doubts about Christ while he's in prison. Now, Jesus doesn't start his ministry until John the Baptist is in prison. And from prison, he sends a couple of his disciples to the place where Jesus is, and he tells the disciples, you ask Jesus these questions. The main one being, are you the one? The second question is, should we look for somebody else? And Jesus loves John. And so he's going to love him, but he's going to speak directly to John's doubts. And he tells the disciples, he says, go tell John what you see. 
the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised from the dead, and good news is being preached to the poor. And then he ends with this in verse 6. Blessed is the one who does not fall away because of me. Those are staggering words. That the Messiah could show up and present himself in the reality and the truth of who he is. And we'd say, no, that's not right. And then he goes to Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida in verses 20 and 24 with some words about what's happening there. Jesus rebukes these cities. Because most of his miracles have been done in these three cities. It's known among the scholars as the evangelistic triangle. The cities of Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida. And Jesus says, guess what? If, if the miracles that I did in you were done in Tyre, and if they were done in Sodom, those cities would exist to this day because they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But you did not repent. And then there's the prayer in verses 25 through 27, the prayer reveals a lot about human nature. Namely, that people who can struggle with pride and, and struggle with conventional human wisdom, at, at least wisdom in their own eyes, sometimes can't even see what children can see. And the point of the prayer is that God has revealed himself in the Christ, but unfortunately, there are those who will not get the revelation because they cling to their own wisdom, to their own learning. That pride in their self-righteousness, I've made myself acceptable to God by the way that I live. It also creates this comparison theology where I know that I'm a little bit better than Jeff because I know he has a problem in this part of his life and I don't have a problem with that particular area. It's always being right. And it's not just always being right, but it's always having to be right. I mean, that is a burden. And the reason that they can't see it is because of everything that he said about Chorazim and Bethsaida and Capernaum. I gave you the eye-opening, eye-popping reasons to see and to understand, and you didn't get it. So then we jump over what he says in, at the end of that chapter, and we go to chapter 12. Look at the first 14 verses. First eight deal with the disciples eating grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are confronting Jesus because he's responsible for his disciples. And they're walking through on a Sabbath day, and as they're walking along, they're plucking the grain and they're eating it. And they say, why in the world are you doing this on the Sabbath? And he could have gone with Scripture. He, you know, says that, you know, what they're doing is, is permissible. They're poor. Or he could have said uh, something along the lines of, well, you know, these guys are fishermen and they're not farmers, so there's really no way to believe that they are doing illicit farming, unlawful farming work on the Sabbath. But what he does instead is he goes to a place in the Old Testament where David and his troop eat some consecrated bread. And a lot of times we look at that and say, okay, well, he's giving him a, a, an example where the rules were broken, therefore, breaking rules is okay. Rules were made to be what? Broken. But that's not where he goes. He says, think about that story there in Nob when David and his troops showed up and they ate the consecrated bread. He said, why did they give him that bread? It's because they recognized the king had come into their midst and authority. And that's why he says, the problem here is that you do not understand that the Lord 
of the Sabbath is here. You don't see that someone more important and greater than the temple is here. And then beginning in verse 9, there's that healing on the Sabbath. They, they confront him again. It's a conundrum of the Sabbath in their eyes. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they've brought a temptation with them, a guy with a withered hand. And Jesus could have countered and said, is it lawful to try and harm a person on the Sabbath? Which ironically is what they were trying to do. Look at verse 14. They want to kill him. But in order for them to see the essence of, 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 of their sin, he heals the guy and he says, you, the, the problem here is you don't understand the difference. And he gives them the example of the sheep falling into a pit. He says, you don't understand the difference between a sheep and a suffering human being. And we laugh at those Pharisees. And we say, how could they, ha, ah, I got it so wrong. How could they have just not been able to see what was in front of them? But let's not laugh too quickly on these kinds of things because there was a time in our period in, uh, among our church tradition where we marked off and wrote off people because there were kitchens in our church buildings and there were coat racks in our, our foyers and we split churches over that. Well, when Jesus addresses the, the, the people with this invitation to come to him, he's talking to people who really need to see who he is and what he offers. And to be able to do that, he has to, he has to contrast it with where they are theologically, with all of these rules and regulations and trying to, you know, trying to wear this yoke of the Pharisees on their back. And he basically gives us three points. The first one is, listen, everybody is weary and burdened. There's this quote from Augustine at the beginning of his book, Confessions, where he writes, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. The, the reason for this is that the Bible assumes that we know that we're yoked to something. That is weighing us down, taking our best energies, a lot of times disappointing us, stealing our joy, and just creating tiredness and exhaustion and, 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 and burdened living in our life. The metaphor of the yoke in our text is not this animal yoke where you had the, you know, where it was built for two animals. It was a, the yoke of, that a human being had when he had a beam across his back. And, and you would put the weights, the heavy burden he had to carry on each end, and there would be these chains that he would hold, or ropes that he would hold to try to, to balance it. And in the first century, it was recognized as Pharisaic Judaism, with all of the regulations upon regulations, upon regulations, upon regulations, upon regulations that essentially buried people underneath the weight of it. And there was no joy in it, because you were never sure if you were doing enough, or what it was that you did, in violating one of these codes, it became part of the oral tradition that God was going to hold against you. And you see it in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, here's the problem with the Pharisees. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on the pe other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a what? Yoke of slavery to the law. Acts chapter 15, Peter speaking. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors had been able to bear? 
But there's more to this idea of yoke than trying to prove ourselves religiously or by being a good, a good person. I mean, there, there's more to yokes that, that cripple human beings with doubt more than religion. I remember hearing about 20 years ago a sermon by Rick Warren where he talked about the ways that people try to, to prove their worth in our culture today, in our technology-advanced, enlightened, research-driven academic world. He said, these are the ways that we're, try- we're killing ourselves trying to prove ourselves. He said, think about it in terms of possessions. I mean, we're trying to keep up with the Joneses, and about the time, I mean, that's a race you never win, right? As soon as you pass the Joneses, the Smiths come up on the left, and you've got something else that you've got to get. The guy that owns the boat has not only got to get a boat, but he's got to get a yacht. I mean, you know how that goes. Possessions and the, ac- uh, the accumulation of possessions just murder people spiritually and emotionally in our country. I mean, we're the... I mean, it's, it's sort of aptly named, right? Black Friday? I mean, that's not White Friday. That's a, you know, that, that is, that, it, it, it's, it's a drive to buy and to buy. How about power? I mean, well, if I can just get a little bit of power, then I can protect myself, I'll have my way in the world. But then, you know, loneliness. I mean, loneliness. People of power are not, a lot of times, very approachable temptations to corruption that come with that power or popularity you know if i can just get my face on the cover of rolling stone magazine remember that song but the problem is nobody has ever heard of the band that sang that song about getting their picture on the cover of the rolling stone magazine i mean people are fickle people are fickle are perfectionists i prove myself because I do this with accuracy, I, I, I do it with acumen, I, I do it with, with perfection. But that, it, that goal is impossible. And so we're all trying to prove ourselves. It's either through religion or it's work or whatever it is that deep down in our hearts we know we need. And yet we know that we're not perfect. And beyond that, we know that we live in guilt because we're not perfect. And that guilt produces anxiety because what it is that we need is acceptance. And it feels like a yoke around our necks. And those tracks that we've gotten into feel like like, um, slavery to it. And it's a life of crushing disappointments and failures. It's a life caught in the toils of endless problems that will never be resolved. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30 present an alternative to the desolation of life that is lived apart from God. And Jesus says, recognize all of you that are weary and exhausted and burdened by a yoke that you have to swap yokes he says in verse 29 take my yoke upon you and learn from me i'm gentle and humble in heart you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is what easy and my burden is light. you know one of the most unfortunate ironies of the modern world is that the christian life is thought to be uh, joyless and and grim and, and guilt-ridden. 
The irony is, is that uh, Soren Kierkegaard, in his book, Fear and Trembling, reminds us that it costs a man just as much or even more to go to hell than to come to heaven. And Proverbs tells us in chapter 13, verse 15, that the way of the unfaithful leads to their what? It sounds to me like the life of faithlessness is also a hard life. But what Jesus is offering is to swap out the yokes, to, to change the yoke, to take the yoke of burden and exhaustion off of our necks and to replace it with his yoke, which is light and easy. Which means that it is completely different. So why would you do that? Jesus is making the offer. Why in the world would you do that? It's because what that yoke is, is a yoke of acceptance. And this is why we need to meditate on these kinds of scriptures. Because what it means to meditate is not just to memorize them so that you get the words right in whatever version of the Bible you read, but it's always to ask the next question. Jesus does this all the time to help people drive down to the center of everything. He says, who do men say that I am? The disciples answer. But he's drilling down even deeper. He says, who do you say that I am? And they say. And he says, let me give you even more information so that you understand that the Son of Man is also the Messiah, but he's also the one that's going to suffer and be rejected, and he's going to be mocked, and he is going to, to, to be killed, but he's going to be raised on the third day. One of the things that we do in premarital counseling is, you know, it, you know it, it, I love doing premarital counseling. It's so much fun. I love these couples. And you, they come together for the first time in my office having filled out, you know, this uh, four or five page questionnaire about family and life and things like that. And you, get, you go through that and you go, okay, I think I have an idea of who you are and who you are. Why do you want to marry each other? Because I love him. I go, what in the world does that mean? And they st stumble around and they, they stammer and they don't really know. But by the time we're in with the, ended with the premarital counseling, they know because they've asked the question, you love me, I get that. Why do you love me? And there's something about knowing the reasons that makes that love special. So we ask the question, why does Jesus want to swap yokes with us? Why does God accept me and why does God want me to accept the yoke of Christ? It's because He loves me. How do you know? How do you know? Well, He, he made me, one reason. Well, that's exactly right. Everything that was done in Genesis 1 and 2 was not only to create an environment for man and woman, but it was also to show that He is a God of love. He has created the world before he put the man in it and the woman in it. He has created a world in which the human beings have everything they need to flourish. That's God being a father. How does a little two-year-old or three-year-old or four-year-old know what it means for their parents to love them in a way that is different from anybody else in the world? It's because those parents have created an atmosphere in which those kiddos feel safe and loved and provided for, and they're protected, and they're given everything that they need to flourish. But that's not the only reason. I mean, that's the beginning of the Bible. But God also shows another way, and that's by the cross. Think of it this way in terms of the cross. 
Every king that you have ever known, every emperor you've ever known, always lived on the backs of the people that he ruled. They made up the army that went out and defeated the enemy and died for their country so that his kingdom was maintained. Christ is the only king being humble and gentle who dies for the sake of his people. When you think about your life and you think about the reality of the cross, what you, what you see is that you're getting a love that you don't deserve. Nobody here deserves that kind of love, which means that the kind of love that we don't deserve that is being offered to us is a love that really breaks out of our imagination. It's that great. And so what he's offering is, is for you to come out of this yoke of slavery that, that is tearing you apart and, 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 and hindering growth and relationship and happiness and joy and peace of mind and forgiveness, all of these things, in order to pick up the yoke that is Christ, who has taken care of every need you have ever had when it comes to God. And to stop knocking yourself out and stop killing yourself trying to prove yourself to God by understanding that you've already been accepted by God through Christ. And so that's why he begins those words in verse, in verse 28 with, Come to me. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to recognize that there is a different life that is being offered to you, there is a different way of living. That, that is being offered to you, that you're being invited to participate in, that makes all the difference in the world. It's an opportunity to not try to prove yourself every time you wake up in the day to make yourself acceptable to God and to live in the doubt of wondering whether or not in the end God's going to pull a, a joker card and say, hey, but you forgot about this. But it's living a life that's worthy of that kind of love. And that's a huge difference. Love is, love is the life changer. You don't defeat your enemies with evil. They're transformed and changed a, a lot of the time. Not, not everybody does. But what is it that changes the heart of, of, of somebody you're estranged with? Somebody that is your enemy? Somebody that wants your harm? Somebody that's not on the same page with you? Is it because you jam it down their throat every time? Their faults, their wrongs, the things that they're guilty of? Or is it because you love them? It's what made me a better man. Knowing that Ellen accepts me. Even though... I couldn't throw a sock in a dirty laundry hamper to save my life for probably the first 10 years of our marriage. That sounds so ridiculous. And, and she, you know, she didn't fight with me about that after a while. You know what she did? She just accepted me. And she accepted me in places that were a lot more important and a lot more precious to me than a sock on the floor. And when I got that, that there was no way come heaven or high water that she was going to leave me, that she accepted me, that she was, was willing to be whatever she needed to, to be for me, then I repented. 
And not only did I start doing a better job of this, I, you know, nobody's perfect with that, right? But I began to be a different person, a different kind of a husband because of love. That nagging thing does not work, let me tell you. We all it works is love. And what, what Jesus is offering is for you to come out of the rain into the shelter of God's love through Christ in order to get rid of that, that burden, to get rid of that weariness, to get rid of that exhaustion in order to find His kindness. And that's what we're going to invite you to do this morning. Uh, Brad has already given you an invitation. He and Brent are going to come down here to the front. If there's any way that we can help you see this more clearly, then what we're going to ask you to do while we're praising God and Jeff leads us is to come down to the front and talk to these shepherds down here at the front. Let's stand and praise God for His easy and kind yoke. When peace like a river